So the title of the Saturday Night Dharma movie is called (laughs) The Ocean of Our Experience, which I'm going to really talk about the practice of equanimity and how it supports us in our journey. And um, as we continue the journey, the... mm, temporary stopping point um, of insight or awakening or enlightenment in however you define that is often um, the the visual metaphor is or the lyrical metaphor is the far shore the far shore um, that we somehow get to and um, Pam will be talking more about that far shore tomorrow. But if there is a far shore, what's in between us and the far shore? It's this ocean. And what is this ocean? What is this thing that we have to traverse? Um, Pam made uh, an allusion to it last night when she ended her talk um, about the struggle with the ups and downs, twists and turns of our path. And it really is a, a pointing to that, that um, piece of teaching that says that each of our lives are made up of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the twists and turns. And, and there is no life that is linear. There is no life that is absolutely clearly the 10,000 joys, no matter how much we want it. And there is no life that is absolutely the 10,000 sorrows, even though sometimes we think that that's all we have. But in reality, um, we actually have to swim through, we have to navigate, we have to figure out for ourselves how to get through this relative world that we live in. And the Buddha and Yasodhara also had to do this in terms of um, in their path to each of their experiences of awakening, they actually had to go through the suffering. They had to go through the bittersweetness of life. So the practice of equanimity actually helps us swim to that farther shore. And um, some of you know that I like to um, quote Broadway show tunes because uh, musicals are another spiritual practice for gay men. (laughs) And (laughs) I don't know if you are aware of Rent. Jonathan Larson wrote Rent. But before he passed away and before he actually wrote Rent, he wrote a... um, a musical called Tick, Tick, Boom, which was not very popular. Um, but it, Dharma is everywhere. And I, so I, I look for Dharma whenever I go to theater, and I find it. And this phrase has always stuck with me. And it is, why do we seek, why do we seek ecstasy in all the wrong places? Why is it hard to see that heaven can have simpler faces? 
And that really struck me because the Buddha also looked for ecstasy in all the wrong places. In the sense that that he experimented with. He lived in this pal- in these palaces of luxury that that um, uh, Pam had described, and and then six years of asceticism with more than several different teachers. His his path was buffeted between these extremes, and his search eventually you know, in that beautiful story last night, was just landing very gently in the middle path. Oh, that memory, that calling. Remembering that calling, sati, mindfulness, can be translated as the ability to remember. The ability to remember what actually allows us to be free. And each time we go into retreat, we follow that same path that the Buddha took the journey to the Bodhi tree, the same, the same um, going back and forth between the extremes in order to find our own middle way, to explore what really will lead to our freedom and happiness. And this is, and one of those explorations is this practice that we call equanimity. So that whether we actually have an explicit practice of equanimity or not, you are practicing it right now because the container of the retreat holds all of your experiences, whether they're blissful or whether they're arduous, whether there's anxiety or sorrow or joy and calmness. It's holding all of your experience because you haven't left. And so you are actually living into this experience of being able to hold everything that's coming up. So one image of equanimity is like riding the waves of this immense ocean. That the joys and the sorrows are the waves, but the ocean is so much more than the waves. So sometimes you know, there, it's calm and there are some ripples. And sometimes these, there are these tidal tsunamis. But even those dramatic differences are not the ocean itself. And so likewise, the joys and the sorrows and the ways that we get uh, pulled and pushed are not all of who we are. Can we surf these waves that... that um, uh, I don't know when you read it, the, the obstacle poem, maybe it was last night, that beautiful phrase, swimming past obstacles like minnow without grudges or memory. And we see this quickly unfolding because the hindrances come up really quickly. And so equanimity or upeka, just like the fourth um, residential house up there, can be seen, can be understood as to perceive patiently, to, to perceive patiently with the evenness of our mind. All of the, the hindrances, all of the, so that we don't actually get thrown off course. 
it emerges from these teachings called the Brahma Viharas, which I'm not really going to um, explicate you know, in, in detail, but many of you know, starts with this primal energy of our heart that we call loving kindness, which is our mindfulness practice. Meeting the moment for what it is, not needing it to be any different, is that gentleness of our heart to be open to whatever occurs. And as we turn the energy of our heart towards the sorrows in the world, to the sorrows in our life, what is said to arise automatically is this quivering of the heart that we call compassion. It's a form of loving kindness. And as we turn it to the um, things that are pleasant and pleasurable and, and gives us happiness in our life, this appreciative joy arises. And, and the joy is not so much about being happy in my own experience, but it's a shared experience. It's, a, it's actually a collective experience of, of, being, of being awed by life, you know, seeing, seeing the, the fog evaporate from the land and just appreciating this, this experience that we're having. And we get, you know, buffeted back and forth between these joys and these sorrows. And if our heart stays open, what emerges is another form of loving kindness, which is equanimity. The ability to hold all of those experiences with some balance. And so it's sort of like, I mean, one of the common metaphors is like riding a bicycle. You get, when, you, when you first get on the bicycle, you're going to fall off. It's, not, it's going to feel like an awkward practice. It's going to feel like a practice that you can't do. And then you get back on. And then eventually, you begin to feel your way into your balance. But even if you're the most expert cyclist, balance is dynamic. It is not something that you achieve because you're always making these micro-movements, micro-adjustments, micro-compensations. You know, and that is what balance is. So it's, it's, a, it's always a work in progress. Jesse Jackson said, you may not be responsible for getting knocked down, but you are certainly responsible for getting back up. So life hits us with a lot of external suffering. We cause some of our own internal suffering. The equanimity is getting back up. We aren't the only beings. So not to, not to, not to say that as human beings we're all that special. So I, uh, this is what a friend wrote to me um, after the Oklahoma City bombings uh, a few years ago. I was in Oklahoma City not long after the federal building bombing. We were driven around the bombed out building by one of the rescue workers. She told us many heartbreaking stories, some sad, some good. She also mentioned that the dogs they used for sniffing out survivors and the dead had to be taken off site every two hours of their work in order to play with their handlers. 
Otherwise, the dogs would become extremely depressed. Playtime was a way to regain their balance and just to be dogs again. We need that kind of balance in our lives too, to remember that our lives are not just about the sorrows, our lives are not just about the joys, but this balance And that aspect of evenness, of balance, is helped by seeing things as they are with an attitude of non-reactivity. Not, not immediately reacting with unconsciousness, but responding when we are aware of what is beneficial. So the you know, each of the Brahma Viharas, some of you know, have the um, near opposite and far opposite. The thing that, that is directly opposite and the, the other thing that sort of looks like it. So the far opposite of equanimity is described as the reactivity to extremes. So this, 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 this um, pushing away that, that we don't like and pulling towards what we do without knowing it, without being mindful. But what, what, what does non-reactivity really mean? How does that, that actually look like? This is where the practice of Vedana becomes so important. Just noticing when something is unpleasant and not needing to follow the impulse. Noticing when something is pleasant and not needing to follow the impulse. So there's a, um, at East Bay Meditation Center, some of the teachers work in the Oakland schools and um, with elementary school folks. And, and um, there's a story that this nine-year-old boy came in one of the um, schools after they had been doing mindfulness practice for a couple of months in homeroom. 15 minutes every day. And uh, she came up to the, he came up to the teacher and said, guess what? And the teacher said, what? I just realized something. What did you realize? I realized that when I get angry, I don't have to do anything about it. That is a profound insight that doesn't just serve a nine-year-old. I mean, it could actually serve all of us but it actually, for, for that to happen in that in environment, it has the possibility of changing so many things. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is not possible. I think I read that before. But our culture is so conditioned to do exactly that, to go to the extremes, to be attached to the pleasant and to be totally aversive to the unpleasant. I was walking um, in downtown San Francisco one day and one of the clothing stores had this banner across the window and it said, moderation kills the spirit. (laughs) I mean, 
you know, these are the messages that we get. I think when we were talking about the Vedana practice, that it that we are actually really good at living, you know, the highs of our life, the things that we we want that are pleasant. We actually are really good at living, you know, the lows of our life too, because we can feel it. And you know, I don't know if you've ever had this the, this experience of being depressed at your depression or getting angry at your anger. We're, ac- we're actually kind of good at, 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 at um, wallowing in, the, in the, you know, the depths. What we are not good at is living in the middle. When things are neither pleasant or neither neutral or neither unpleasant. When things are just okay when things are just okay, the conditioning is, it's not enough. So the, the Buddha actually gave a teaching around this that actually begins to dissolve the second noble truth or the, the, the aspect of the cause of suffering. And it's called the Santitagatha teaching, the instructions for the rich. You, who want to escape from all the various afflictions, must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy, even if they're in heaven. The people who do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they're rich. The people who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they're poor. This is really the invitation to explore the practice of contentment, of things being enough. And a lot of our invitations have been inclining the practice towards this direction. So, for example, in the sitting meditation, is it possible to simply be with the sitting as it is, whether it's agitated, whether it's calm, whether it's distracted, whether it's restless. Can you sense this? Can you, can you give it space to just allow it to be what it is? In one of the eating invitations, I, I offered that instruction of eating five bites from full. Can we, can we Notice when the body is sated, satisfied, and not need to go any further. Contentment is also not so much about what we have, but it's, it's about how little we actually need to live a beautiful life. So really, even in this moment, just take, a, just take a moment to sense what it is that you don't need right now. Where in that place in your experience 
Are you okay? Are you fine? You don't need anything more or anything less. That's a place of contentment that we often overlook or take for granted. And it really hits some core issues that that many of us in our culture, not just individually, but our culture has, of not feeling that we're good enough, not feeling that we look good enough, that not feeling that we um, do things well enough, not, not believing that you're a good enough meditator. What if you were totally good enough? Who would you be? And what kind of life would you live? Um, Winnicott, who is one of the Western psychologists and was dealing with a lot of child psychology, I think this was in the 50s, came up with this term, you know, that because they were looking at, um, this is post Dr. Spock, uh, Benjamin Spock around uh, child rearing, they were looking about parenting issues and, and he came up with this concept of the good enough mother, the good enough parent which I think is actually a very um, useful term, but to apply it more globally, of what it would be like to be a good enough person and not need to be perfect, because those imperfections are actually part of our human journey. To be content where we are. I don't know if some of you know this comedian called Louis C.K., but he's, you know, he's this um, pretty brash, uh, I think he's Irish, but he has a couple YouTube clips. Anyway, this clip got uh, over two million hits in, in two months. And um, uh, it was a couple of months ago, and it, so it's a little dated, but it was when f- the, the internet first got onto um, the airlines. And it was, uh, and so he says, I was on this airplane and there was high-speed internet on the airplane. That's the newest thing that I know that exists. And I'm sitting on the, air, on the airplane and they go up and you open your laptop and you go onto the internet and it's fast. I'm watching YouTube clips. It's amazing. I'm on an airplane. And then the internet breaks down. And the guy next to me goes, ugh, this is bullshit. (laughs) Like, how quickly the world owes to him something that he only knew existed 10 seconds ago. (laughs) This This is the power of the unconscious power of our craving to want more and more. To think that the satisfaction of craving is going to actually create happiness. And that's the fundamental delusion. Because the consequence of craving is is that it can never be satisfied. All craving seeks its own destruction. Because all craving is the craving for no craving. If you really feel your way into that, You know, the extreme example, if any of you have had issues with drugs or alcohol, and you know that what you really, and I speak from personal experience, that that when you 
take those intoxicants, you want that, that plateau. You don't want the craving. You want the high. Except the high doesn't last. And then there's the crash. And that is like any satisfaction of craving. Because it's always temporary. And why is it always temporary? Because craving has no insight. It has no wisdom. It doesn't know that the cause of suffering is craving itself. Only mindfulness has the possibility of creating that insight. So just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, craving, and reactive, so in this practice we are reconditioning the mind to be mindful, content, and equanimous. We think that the freedom from craving is dependent on the object of our desire. But actually, freedom is dependent on our internal relationship to the desire itself. So the practice and the door to freedom is exploring desire itself, not the object. So as you are practicing and desire comes up or aversion comes up, see if you can drop the object and turn the practice towards the experience itself of wanting. Wanting more of it or less of it. And see, as an experiment, the different objects that you drop. What's the feeling like? Are there any similarities? What's the feeling like for wanting the walking meditation to be different? How does that compare to the hunger that you have for the next meal? How does it feel for, in terms of difference, in terms of wanting a different relationship in your life? Or a job? Or a living space? Or wanting the retreat to be over? All of these things, drop the object and look at what is arising, which is the wanting itself. This awareness of the wanting is not wanting itself. Awareness of craving is not craving. It's especially not being lost in craving. All of a sudden, you have a slightly larger view. This is the practice of equanimity, expanding the landscape so that you can hold even the craving. I was on a retreat, and, and on the second day of practice, in, in, in his first interview, one of the practitioners said, you know, I discovered this whole world inside of me that I never knew about. And that whole world can hold all of your experience if, if we become more and more mindful. So part of... Part of the equanimity practice is patience 
and acceptance, this, this non-react, the ability to n- not react, be non-attached to how things are. Not needing things to be other, any way other than they are. And the Buddha did not, you know, when he, when he woke up at, on, underneath the Bodhi tree, his problems didn't go away. He, um, in terms of his personal problems, he continued to have migraines all his life. And it's said that he had backaches. And he actually had a lot of digestive um, stomach problems, of which um, that's how he actually passed away. But he also had, you know, it's, the, it's um, documented in, in uh, the scriptures, conflicts in the Sangha. Um, people who tried to kill him. His cousin tried to kill him three times. And probably the most devastating, at least it would be devastating to any of us, is his whole tribe, the Sakyan kingdom, got wiped out in a war. They got demolished in his lifetime. Not to mention his mother died, his wife predeceased him. So it's not as if when you, you reach, it's, it's not about getting to a place in which there are no problems or no, are no issues. But in spite of all of that, is there freedom? Is there a place of stillness in the turmoil, in the, in the activity of your lives? What are the conditions of our freedom? So I began my practice about 20 years ago, and um, 20 years ago, uh, I have to say, you know, it was, it was hard for me to start uh, in practice in retreats like this. Um, you know, as a, as a gay man of color, I did not see anyone in the rooms like me. I didn't hear any stories that reflected my life. And it was really hard for me to make the leap in terms of how relevant these teachings were because I, was, I didn't even know if I was welcomed in the rooms. And I really wanted to change the room. I wanted the room to be more like me. And I spent a lot of time trying to create scenarios of what they should do or what, you know, it shouldn't be like this. Wanting things to be other than how they were. It was a lot of suffering. And actually, there were a few retreats I left before the end because I I couldn't hold that peace. I couldn't hold the anxiety. I couldn't hold the physical feelings. I couldn't hold the rage because it would trigger previous injuries in my life. And I, and I say this not because of this particular you know, situation, life situation, but it, it's really just about suffering. And what this practice has given me over time is the ability to practice anywhere and receive teachings 
from anyone and to be with in community everyone. And that is some freedom because I don't have that sense of suffering anymore. Freedom does not mean that we get rid of our problems or get rid of our struggles or get rid of our difficulties. Freedom is being able to be with all of that with an open heart and a clear mind. So when we're, when we're feeling that edge of it could be tremendous aversion or it could be just simply dissatisfaction, is there a place in your experience that you can be okay with it? Can we be content with both dissatisfaction and satisfaction? Can we, another way of languaging it sometimes in different lineages is, can we cultivate this practice of no preference? Can we ride the waves of the ocean? There is a story from um, the Buddha's life um, of Angulimala, whom some of you may know. Um, I love his story because actually there's so many different teachings you can pull from it. Um, Angulimala, his, his original name was Ahimsaka. And Ahimsaka means harmless one. And he was this pure boy, innocent boy, who was brilliant in school. And um, because of his brilliance uh, caused the jealousy of his classmates. And so they started, uh, you know, um, the equivalent of bullying. And they told the, his teacher, their teacher, that um, he was having an affair with his wife. And so the teacher believed um, the rumors and became enraged and was trying to figure out a way of getting back at Ahimsaka. And so he decided um, to ask payment for his teaching services. And the payment would be um, that he would have to kill a thousand people and, and um, uh, collect uh, a thousand thumb digits in a necklace. And of course, Ahimsaka couldn't do this. So he left school. And when he went to, back to his um, family, his family disowned him. He, they didn't even ask for the reason, but it was so shameful that he left you know, his, 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 his schooling. And um, he actually uh, became crazy, or it drove him insane, this, uh, this external oppression that comes sometimes in our life without our control the suffering. And so he started to kill. That's the only thing that he could remember is to collect a thousand um, finger digits. And he became, he, he became known as Anguli Mala. You know, the digit is Anguli and Mala is like the Mala, the necklace. And so he had killed 999 people and he was, um, uh, he was about to kill his 
last person, and um, his mother was walking down the path. And he said, even if it is my mother, I am going to fulfill my, my task. And the Buddha, in his all-seeing, saw the karma of, of killing one's own parent and intervened and walked in between um, uh, the mother and, the, and, and, and Angulimala. And so Angulimala started following the Buddha and started running after him. But as fast as he would run, and the Buddha was just walking really slowly, he could never catch up. And so Angulimala yelled out, Stop! Stop, monk, stop! And the Buddha turned around and he said, I have stopped. I have stopped because I have given up killing all beings. I have given up ill-treating all beings and have established myself in universal love, patience, and the knowledge, and knowledge through reflection. But you have not stopped. You have not given up killing or ill-treating others, and you are not established in universal love and patience. You are the one who has not stopped. And with that, he was able to cut through the delusion and the suffering of Angulimala in that moment. And so Angulimala ordained as part of the Sangha. So again, this is a sort of a tale of mythical proportions that, um, uh, that there is a way in which you know, suffering can, can be endless until we actually pierce through it with kindness. And so the second part is actually what's more relevant for this particular talk. This is that Angulimala followed all the precepts. He led a, a, a wholesome life. He actually became the, um, um, the assistant to the midwives in terms of, of bringing new life into the world. But because of his you know, evil karma in the past, it didn't mean that people loved him. People still hated him. And so he would go on alms rounds and people would throw rocks and stones and he would come back bloody and, 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 um, and so he went to the Buddha in despair because he had changed his life. And the Buddha, and I love this passage, the Buddha said, my son, Angulimala. It's that intimate. It's that loving. My son, you have done away with evil. Have patience. Your karma would have made you suffer through innumerable existences had I not met you. Have patience to hold the unfolding of this suffering that just because you decide to do something good in your life doesn't mean everything in the past is, is over with. You have to actually live through that karma to have patience. And sometimes this is what we have to do. Sometimes the transformation in our lives takes a lot longer than we would like. And this is where this practice of equanimity allows us 
supports us to swim through that ocean. And the ending of the story is, is that Angulimala actually attained arhantship or full awakening. And he passed away um, very peacefully. That I talked about the far opposite of being reactive to extremes. The near opposite of equanimity, the, the thing that masquerades as it sometimes, that we can experience and we think that it's, that it's equanimity, is indifference, apathy. Sort of a, a distant, you know, detachment. So there's a, there's a word in our current lexicon that is emblematic of this indifference. Anybody care to guess? Whatever. Thank you. <laughs> Whatever. It has come into our language so um, uh, universally. I mean, it used to be just for young folks, but you know... <laughs> My mother says it. (laughs) And so I looked it up in this online urban dictionary, which is, you know, kind of a punky type of place. And some of the the definitions are, I don't care. But some of them are, nothing you say or do could make you matter to me. I am actually upset that you're stealing my air. (laughs) Just feel how that indifference can be so demeaning and actually uh, different than equanimity. It's really aversion. There was a school in London that actually tried to, you know, um, develop some interventions around the use of the word. And one teacher said... You know, as soon as someone says that, hug them. (laughs) You know, love them. Because there's a distinction between detachment and non-attachment. So really to explore if that's true for you. Because sometimes when we think we're not, when we're not attached, that we don't care. But actually, non-attachment is being fully engaged. It's just not caught. It's not lost. I also want to speak a little bit to this non-reactive part. Because non-reactivity is actually an active modality. It's not passive. So I don't want to give you the impression that this practice is about laying back and just letting things roll over you like a bulldozer. Sayadaw Upandita, who is still alive these days, and he's one of the Burmese masters that, that, that really brought a lot of the mindfulness practice to um, the West. He trained a lot of the Western teachers. Said that practicing satipatthana, practicing mindfulness, 
means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. Mindfulness and equanimity allows us to change the suffering in the world in a way that doesn't create more suffering. We can't cry out for peace when we're in that place of, of violence ourselves. Dr. Martin Luther King said, and I think this is a beautiful um, aspiration of, of equanimity. We can stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering on by our capacity to endure it. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you Throw us in jail and we will still love you. But be assured that we will ride you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win the freedom of ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That is how expansive this equanimity practice. It is not just about our own individual experience. It's about how our practice literally changes the world around us. As I said, simply by being here, simply by going through the retreat, in whatever ways it's come up, whether it's been difficult or easy, whether it's been blissful, however you've been able to stay present, stay in your seat, you have come so far in your mindfulness and equanimity practice. And even if you don't feel that mindful, and even if you don't feel that equanimous, it is still working through you. Because you haven't left. And you're holding those 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That whole, you are swimming through that ocean. So I want to talk about a little bit about um, uh, the woman who has the title Lady of No Fear. And she's Ansang Suchi in Burma. And some of you know that, or most of us know that she was released from jail in November. But um, uh, she's carried the democratic movement in Burma for uh, almost 25 years. And 
out of 21 years, she was incarcerated for 15. And she was kind of living a regular life until 1988. She had two kids. She was married to, um, um, I believe, a professor. She was an academic researcher herself. She came home to take care of her mother in, in, in Burma. And she had a calling because her father was one of the generals that was instrumental in, in um, releasing Burma from uh, the British colonial rule. And so when there were, there, was a, there were these protests against the military junta, her calling was, was right there. But her departure was not of her choice. Her departure in terms of, of being secluded, of being you know, jailed, of being unable to leave the country because if she left, she knew that she would never be able to come back and represent that, that democratic movement. And so she struggled. She has gone through this human journey. She struggled. She struggled because she couldn't see her husband before he died of prostate cancer. So between 1988 and 1999, she only saw him five times and was separated from her sons at the age of 11 and 15. And in the uh, cyclone of 2008, it blew off the roof of her house and no electricity. And the government didn't fix the house. So for a long time, she lived in in the dark. And so she was released from um, house arrest in November. That's her return back into the work or the life. We'll talk about the return of the journey as we get closer to the end of the retreat. But in her return, she has, she has still maintained the spaciousness. So this is a, um, what she said in Time Magazine, um, or what Time Magazine wrote about her. The regime has ignored her repeated offers for national reconciliation. Since releasing her, the junta has dealt with Suchi as by acting as if she didn't exist, expunging mentions of her from the local press and hoping, despite her busy calendar and her huge and the huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, that somehow she will dwindle into irrelevance. She says, "All I wish is I could have tea with them every Saturday, a friendly cup of tea." Suchi says of the generals. And so then the interviewer asks, and what if they don't want to have tea with you? And her reply is, well, we could always try coffee. (laughs) That is her attitude. That is how open she is in spite of the struggle that she's gone through. And she knows the impermanence of the journey. 
So just because she's returned once doesn't mean the departure will be not be forced on her again. And so for now she is out. But there's little doubt that if the junta sees her in as any realistic challenge to its authority, she will be sent to jail again on whatever spurious charge the military can concoct. She says, I want to do as much as I can while I'm free, but I don't want to tire myself out. We never know how much time we have. There's that balance. She knows that she is pivotal to some collective movement towards freedom, and yet she still needs to take care of herself. Because if she doesn't, she cannot possibly be there for her people. This is not just about our personal practice. This is not just about some practice of saving ourselves from suffering. This is the possibility of changing the world around us. We can hold a vision of how we see the world and how we see the world could be and make our actions consistent with that. There's a direct connection of what you're doing in this retreat with how we are in the world. The creation of peace and kindness in the world, which so desperately needs it, is no different than the creation of peace and kindness in this room. Your practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of your freedom. You are creating moments of freedom right now for yourselves, for your communities, for all of us. Anna Julia Cooper, who was... um, Uh, one of the great African-American educators in the late 1800s, said the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race or a sect or a party or a class. It is the cause of humankind. It is the very birthright of humanity. That is the great journey. That is our birthright. This is the human journey through suffering into freedom, both individually and collectively. And the Buddha said he would not teach that which is not possible. So freedom is possible.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.